One of the biggest topics in e-commerce right now is selling your business. How do you sell it? When do you sell it? Should you do it again? Today's guest is going to talk about all of that. He sold his business. He works with other people that are selling your businesses, and he's doing it again. Not a big pitch fest in this episode is 100% just him telling his story and giving as much advice as he possibly can. It's going to be a great episode. Listen to the end, and here we go. Hi, I'm Tim Jordan, and at every corner of the world, entrepreneurship is growing. So join me as I explore the stories of successes and failures. Listen in as I chat with the risk takers, the adventurous, and the entrepreneurial veterans. We all have a dream of living a life fulfilling our passions, and we want a business that doesn't make us punch a time clock, but instead runs around the clock, in the AM and the PM. So get motivated, get inspired. You're listening to the AM PM Podcast. Hey guys, Bradley Sutton from Helium 10 here. Quick message. If you're an FBA business owner, you've maybe put thousands of hours of hard work into growing your business. But what happens when you've grown it as much as you can and you don't have the time or resources to take it to that next level? Well, that's where Thrasio comes in. They acquire category-leading FBA brands from small business owners just like you. They've got the experience of acquiring over 125 Amazon businesses, and they've seen it all when it comes to managing and growing an Amazon brand. So if you're thinking about selling your FBA business, visit Thrasio.com forward slash Helium 10 to connect with Thrasio's deals team. That's Thrasio.com, T-H-R-A-S-I-O.com forward slash Helium 10 for more information on if your brand is a good fit for Thrasio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the AMPM podcast. I just finished up the Prosper show in Las Vegas. It was the first big conference that kind of we all came back to. And it was very interesting because the the world has changed, e-commerce has changed, and really the whole industry and the community has changed a lot. And one of the hot words this year was aggregator or acquirer or broker. Everybody right now, especially you know, over the past 18 months, have been talking about this. How do we sell our business? How do we get our business ready for sale? Um, who wants to buy our business? Who's, who's poning up the biggest bucks? Like It is a really, really hot topic. And there's so much information out there, and everybody's claiming that they know the answer or that they are the best solution. Well, obviously, we can't all be the best, or they can't all be the best. We can't all have the best content. Like There's got to be some way to demystify some of this stuff. Because it is a hot topic. I want to talk about it. But I don't want to talk about it specifically for myself. I want to bring on today's guest. His name is Ben Leonard. He's over there in, where are you, Ben? You're in Ireland? I'm in Scotland. Scotland. It's basically the same thing, right? Uh, kind of. Uh, it's no, I'm totally but I'm in the, we're, 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 we're in the UK. <laughs> totally kidding. All right. So Scotland, and um, he's got an interesting story, and, and we're really going to dive into this story today, and I don't even know the whole story myself, and I'm going to ask a lot of questions along the way, but the short version of the story is... He has built a business. He sold it to one of the more well-known acquirers in the Amazon FBA space. And since then, he is continuing to build more brands and businesses. And the reason I think this is interesting is there's a lot of people that would build a business and sell it, but we don't have the context of like, what would you do differently? And Ben's actually sitting down to the game plan and like, all right, I sold it. This is what went well. This is what didn't go well. Here's what I should have done differently. Here's what I did right. What am I going to do next time? as we go through this journey again. So that's how we're going to do this episode. We're just going to jump in. We're going to hear this, this story and I'm going to interject a lot with questions that I personally have. And I think a lot of you would have and, and it should go well. So thanks Ben for being on. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here, Tim. 
So first, let's start with your story. Like I know that you alluded to the fact that you, like many of us, accidentally started e-commerce. Tell us what that means. How'd you get started this Amazon thing? Yeah, it was um, it was late 2015, early 2016. Uh, I got really ill with a heart problem. Um, it was the third time I had it, and I'm absolutely fine now. But at that point, the doctors basically said, you need to take a significant amount of time off from your, your ridiculous fitness hobbies. So no more CrossFit, no more boxing, no more throwing weights around, no more running around, no more scuba diving. Um, and rest for about nine months and take all of these strong drugs. And so I needed something to fill my time that would keep me occupied and ideally um, be connected to the hobbies that I enjoyed and maybe earn me some extra money on the side. And so I decided to start a brand of fitness equipment. Um, I remember I was uh, sadly looking through my my bag of, of fitness kit that I would take to the gym with me, boxing gloves, jump rope, that type of thing. And thinking about how I wasn't using it, but also I thought, hmm, I could I could do a better job of this. And so I had the idea to start a fitness brand. And, and at this point, I knew almost nothing about e-commerce. I was probably one of those people that thought when you buy something on Amazon, you're buying it from Amazon. I don't think I knew at that point that there was such a thing as third party selling. But luckily, I have a, a background in science. I'm actually an ecologist by qualification. And so I started this huge experiment of learn by doing so you know try something test it see what happens look at the results tweak it and go again and i stumbled into this world of e-commerce uh started to develop this brand which was called beast gear and turns out i was pretty good at it and eventually i quit my job did that full time grew it to mid seven figures and by late 2019 i'd sold I feel like that was a very short version of the story. That was a very short version of the story. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, right. the, that's the that's the back of the book. Got it. All right, so let me let me start diving in. So this brand that you sold, you're mostly selling it on Amazon, right? Yeah, yeah. Were there any other channels you were selling on? Yeah, so it was uh, mostly on Amazon. And it, uh, to begin with, it was Amazon UK. Then I got into the, the PAN-EU program. I was selling right across Europe. Then... Which you can't really do anymore because of Brexit. You can't really do anymore because of... You can still be on the Pan-EU program, but it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, And a lot of people are having a big big headache with that. Brexit has uh, put paid to that. But at that time, I was, which was good. Shortly before I exited, I had gotten to the, the new Amazon Middle East platform. I was also on Amazon Australia. But... Yes, we were selling on other than other platforms other than Amazon. Uh, there was our own website, which was a built-in Shopify platform, and that only fulfilled two customers in the UK. It was it was on my my plan to uh, expand that capability of the site to 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 fulfill to customers right across Europe, but didn't get to that before I sold the brand. So you weren't selling in the US at all. Nope. Um, which was probably one of the things that made the brand reasonably attractive, other than it's obviously its success in itself anyway. But having this opportunity to easily take a brand from an English-speaking marketplace over to the US and Canada and um, take the brand across there was, you know, that was that was the carrot on the stick or the meat on the bone for a, a potential buyer, you know, um, when the time did come to sell later on down the line. There was still okay, so let's let's hit that in a second. But let me ask you this: Why weren't you in the U.S.? Because everybody talks about if you're going to sell on Amazon, it's got to be in the U.S. Was it just the logistics were going to be difficult to do that, or were you selling a product that may have been a little too saturated or competitive here, but was wide open over there? 
With the benefit of hindsight, I probably should, I definitely should have gone into the US um, either at the very start or shortly after I started. However, got to remember that at that point, I was quite inexperienced and I was just dipping my toe into the water to test out this idea that I'd had. This was, this was early 2016 and it just felt natural and logical to me and I was comfortable to start in the UK. I was, you know, my mindset was, well, I'm in the UK, so I'll start in the UK. I knew there was a market in the UK. And actually, it wasn't so bad in the end, because I very quickly got access to, you know, the whole of Europe, which was very under-optimized and underutilized by English-speaking sellers. And I was able to take advantage of that and grow really, really nicely. So the other thing you mentioned is like meat on the bone, all right, the carrot on the stick. So Let's back up a little bit and just make sure everybody understands what we're talking about with acquisition or, or acquiring. There is a big push right now for people to buy Amazon businesses, right? Amazon brands, Amazon revenue, essentially people are purchasing Amazon accounts, whatever it is. And when these companies are purchasing an Amazon business, they're paying a certain multiple over the EBITDA or basically the net profits, right? It's an investment for them. They have to be able to turn a profit on this. So yeah, they might be out of money for the or, or out on cash for the first year or two years, but they want to be able to maximize that revenue either just by waiting it out with existing revenue, or I think what Ben is referring to as increasing the profitability of the business. So the meat on the bone would be, for an example, like I talk to a lot of acquirers, they say, hey, if we find a brand that is selling well, but their listing is not optimized well, they're selling well, but their PPC sucks, or selling well, but they're not omni-channel or multi-channel. Like that means they can make a quick tweak to the business and start increasing revenue, profits, ROI, so they can actually take that investment and start increasing that investment very rapidly, right? So Ben, that's, I assume what you mean by meat on the bone. You're saying, hey, there was actually an attractive quality to this business because it was selling well here and they should be able to pull that lever pretty quickly. Hey, I like this brand. I like these reviews that we can we can transport and import. Um, as an acquirer, I can take Ben's brand, Beast Gear, move it to the U.S. and instantly start increasing the value of this business. Is that right? Exactly. Yep. So I see a lot of brands um, which are, you know, only selling in the U.K. and very quickly uh, a buyer who has the capability could uh, realize a lot of growth simply by bringing them to the rest of Europe or, as you say, with the, the example of Beast Gear, taking them over to the U.S. So that's exactly it. Well, it's, it sounds like a catch-22. You're saying, oh, man, I wish I had been in the U.S. I wish I had started <laughs> yeah. selling over there. But you're also like, hey, there was actually a lot of attraction to my business yep. because I wasn't. You're absolutely right. It's um, There are pros and cons of that situation, right? You don't want to you, you, you max out growth and then sell. You want to leave something for the buyer. They want to accelerate the growth even further and then eventually exit themselves. So there is a balance to be struck between having a successful business that is growing and is demonstratively growing, um, but also has uh, low-hanging fruit for a potential buyer. Um, but I don't think if I'd gone to the States, um, I would have you know, made the business less attractive because there's still plenty of opportunities to grow and improve the margins by operating a scale for, for a buyer. Um, so I, I I, yeah, one of the things, if I could have my time again, one of the things I would change is I probably would have gone to the States much, much earlier. Do you think that the products you were selling were much more competitive in the States? Like, would it have been a knockdown, drag out battle compared to what you were doing in the UK and PanEU? I think it was more competitive. And certainly now in that niche, it's it's very, very competitive. Back then, 
it was more competitive than it was in the UK because it was a more mature market. Um, however, it still would have been doable. Cash flow would have been tough, but uh, you know that would have been fine. Um, there's always obstacles like that to overcome. Um, so no, it wouldn't have been impossible. It just would have been a bit more difficult because at that time, third-party selling in the UK and Europe was less mature than the US. So you ended up selling your business. Who did you sell your business to? I sold it to Thrasio. And uh, for the avoidance of doubt, I'm allowed to say that. They use me in some of their PR. I have a great relationship with those guys. So that's public domain. I can say that. And Thrasio is an interesting company. Um, I have an opinion about a lot of the aggregators, a lot of the aggregator model, and and um, maybe a lot of you listeners do too. And Thrasio is the most publicly known Amazon FBA business aggregator slash acquirer. They were kind of first in the market. Um they have been the first to make some really crazy headlines about their valuation. They've recruited some of the the really, really kind of top talent in the industry. When you sold to Thrasio, that's fairly, you know, standard process, I assume. Um, you show them your business, they make you an offer, you might counter it, and they eventually sell. What were some of the big mistakes that maybe you made? What were some of the big headaches, the things that cost you the most stress during that due diligence offer and purchase process? What you don't want to do, in my opinion, is um, is send an email out to 150 aggregators saying, hey, my business is for sale. Or slap it on a, on a, like a, a marketplace or something and, and let all the vultures come at it. You want to have, in my view, you want to have a competitive environment, enough people to have you know a bit of an auction going. But the, those at the table need to be the right buyer. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people have raised money in this space, but a lot of people have raised money having you known diddly squat about running an e-commerce business. Now, fortunately for me, Thrasio, as you mentioned, have hired an extraordinary amount of talent and they do know what they're doing with e-commerce businesses. But there are aggregators out there who have raised money because, you know, they're money raising people, but they're not e-commerce people. And so sometimes they'll be at the table. They'll present what looks like a fantastic offer. But then so much of it is on the back end, on, some, on an earnout, for instance. But actually, these guys don't have the chops to run the business. And I would argue that only 10 to 20% of aggregators really know what they're doing. And many of them are flailing, trying to merge with each other. And therefore, those aren't the kind of buyers that you want at the table. So you want a competitive environment of the right type of buyer, ideally where you'd be, if any of those buyers that are at the table ended up being the one to buy your business from you, you'd be happy enough that it, your business was in safe hands. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. So do you think that the biggest problem with your acquisition and sale was because there's only one person at the table? Or do you think it's because the broker that you were dealing with may have had some imperfections, some flaws in their system? Or maybe combination? Combination. Combination. Um, the, the, the broker that I was dealing with, nice nice people on an individual level, um, but they were operating at scale um, and were, uh, you know, the, this, their business model was less uh, bespoke, shall we say, and the, 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 you know, this isn't something that necessarily happens to everyone, but for me personally, there was a significant error in the number crunching, which I picked up on and my accountant fixed. So I ended up negotiating down their commission. That was one of the motivators for what I'm doing now. But yeah, um, it was a combination of the two. So if I could have my time again, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I would I would change those things. That's not to say that I'm not 
exiting was still the right thing for me and the timing was still right for me. And I'm still grateful that, that I did that. Um, so I wouldn't want people to think, you know, think that. Well, and, and of course we're, you know, we're not a pitch fest. We don't want to pitch what you're doing now, but you are helping other sellers right now, you know, advising them and, and stuff like that, getting ready for sale. The mistake that you made, um, not having your numbers in order, not having that clear, is that a problem you still see people having right now? Is that one of the most common problems? It is. Yeah. So fortunately I did, my numbers were in order because my, my accountant, um, has, is, is greatly experienced and also has about 20 years experience in mergers and acquisitions and ended up fixing the, the issues that we identified that the broker had had done. And I see this uh, often. I see it in the Facebook groups. Um, people, and I, I hear about it in conversations with clients, people are um, not having their numbers uh, in order, potentially because they've got cash accounts rather than accrual, or they don't properly understand their COGS, or they, they don't understand what can be added back to their P&L sheet or adjusted in valuing their business. And these things are really important because if you don't understand them, the people that are going to try and buy your business from you are going to take advantage of that f- for their own ends because they know you don't understand them and they probably understand it better than you do. So that's really important that you work with somebody yeah. to help you get that right. So... You know, you sold your business. You said the timing is good. You're still glad you went through it. There were some mistakes. What's interesting about your story and your journey is that you didn't stop there. Because I know a lot of people that sold their brands or sold their businesses and went off on something else. But you said, okay, I'm going to do it again the second time. Yep. Maybe a third time. So once you made that exit, you started building new brands. You started building new businesses. And I suspect that you're doing things differently with these businesses because you know the process, you know the end goal, right? So what are some of the things you're doing in your current businesses you weren't doing previously because you know you want to increase the valuation and sell this business? Like what are some of the things you're adopting now in way of performance or operations or just business development? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a really important one to talk about because when I started the first brand, I I I didn't start it with an exit in mind. And so I made the when I made the decision to sell, I had a bit of time to plan the exit, but it wasn't ideal. And, and the last thing you want to do is wake up and decide you want to sell your business. What you want to do is wake up and decide you want to plan to exit. And so when you are ha- when you have that plan from the very moment you conceive of your business idea, you're going to be in the best possible position. And so that's what I'm doing with my with my new brands. And when you have an exit under your belt, um, chances are you're going to have a, a decent amount of cash, which means that you can get into... Um, niches with a, a higher barrier to entry and potentially source more expensive products. So for instance, with my first brand, my first product, I was sourcing jump ropes from China for a few dollars. Now I'm built, developing this baby brand. I've just had my first prototype of my first product back from my, 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 my manufacturer, which is not in China. It's in uh, another part of uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, so I was able to pay a sourcing, uh, a top sourcing agent to find me the right manufacturer. Uh, I've been able to pay a top product designer uh, five figures to design this product for me. And I've, I'm able to now source products for $25, $30 a unit instead of $3 a unit to enter a much more competitive niche. And what's really interesting about that is in that niche, there's really no one, there's no little guys, right? It's all big corporates. And big corporates, I talk about this quite a lot, uh, 
Big corporates are like big lumbering speed, uh, big lumbering cruise ships. They take half a day to turn around. And don't get me wrong, I like cruise ships. They take you to really interesting and exciting places. But little guys like us, we're like little nimble speedboats. We can turn around very quickly. We can change our itinerary. We can decide we want to go swim with dolphins, or we want to go snorkeling, or we want to go shark fishing. And we'll still end up at the beach party at the end of the day with all our friends from the cruise ship. We've done all this other exciting stuff too, emerged ahead of the game, which is why Amazon still now, even though third-party selling has existed for the best part of a decade, is still dominated by little guys. So therefore, when I'm entering this much more expensive niche, but I'm the little guy, I can tell that story. And I can use those nimble speedboat strategies to beat those guys, which makes my business much more sellable, to come back to your original point. So being able to just enter that kind of niche for a start makes it much better for an exit. But in addition to that, there's obviously just all the learning from the first brand. So I made the classic entrepreneurial error of not outsourcing early enough. We all talk about this, but everybody seems to make the same mistake, right? We've heard... Now you're talking about outsourcing labor, right? Outsourcing operations, outsourcing exactly. the time. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't okay. uh, bring on any uh, freelancers or VAs, whatever you want to call them, for probably a year and a half into that business, which was a mistake. The moment I did, I realized what a liberating experience that was and how I was able to, you know, it's the classic work on the business instead of in the business. These things help scale the business and make it more valuable. Well, I'm doing that straight from the get-go. Day one, I won't be hand handling any of the day one nitty gritty. But, you know, the, the, the classic model is you do all that stuff until such a time as you are your capacity is full and you outsource it. Well, when you're going again, you're probably going to do that straight from the get-go. All that type of stuff is going to make a difference. So I want to go back for a second and say one thing that you appreciate that you're doing this time is that you're going a little bit bigger right? You're able to, mm. to outsource immediately. You're able to buy more expensive products to sell. Do mm. you think it's easier to get started with more money because now you have some cash from your first sale? And the reason I ask this is, you know, one of the attractive things to selling online is it doesn't necessarily have to be massively capital heavy. Like you can yep. get started fairly small and you can ramp up and you can bootstrap it. Um, and I understand that there's a lot of us sellers that have always have been, or, or maybe still in that position where we need to go very light, right? Yeah. But do you think it's an accurate statement to say, if you can afford to go bigger, there are much more opportunities and it's much easier to scale quickly if you have funds to be able to invest into the company? I, I do. I do. But I wouldn't want to put people off who don't have those funds yet because it is it is still achievable. And there's an important point here, which um, not enough people talk about because it's it's not um, it's not quantitative. Right. It's quite emotional. Uh, the point that I'm, I'm about to make, which is this, right? When you are doing some, doing your e-commerce business potentially as a side hustle, or you're trying to bring in extra money to pay the bills, whatever it is, you've got a dream, right? And there'll be people listening to this who, who will feel exactly this way. There's like this, this, this constant pressure. I'm not necessarily saying that you're in a constant stressed out state, but there's this little bit of pressure, right? It, it, all, there's good stress and there's bad stress. So there's a little bit of good stress. And that constant, almost good stress can help you operate at your best and really um, make it happen, right? And I feel like that worked for me with B-Skier. I was doing B-Skier on a laptop in a cupboard in my apartment in my evenings and weekends. Right. And then it got to a point where it was just ridiculous and I had to quit my job. But that kind of pressure 
helped. And then when I quit my job, the pressure built because I, I had quit my job. I needed this to work, right? I'd, I'd gone all in, right? I had a, I had a, a, a wife, my wife was pregnant. I needed this to work. So that pressure that you experience when you don't have tons of money, you can use to your advantage. And I'm not really going to have that this time around because I, I am, you know, financially free having made my first exit. But on the flip side to that, I have the benefit of something else, which is that I have this like, ah, this like, space to breathe and take a step back and operate at my best right so i'm kind of contradicting myself here it's like say you're a say you're a top i don't know i'm trying to think of an american sport say you're a top ice hockey player and <laughs> i love how your perception of an american sport is ice hockey well i wanted to think of something that was a bit like fo- uh, soccer but not soccer <laughs> there's a goal on each side hockey right exactly there's a goal on each side right (laughs) got it so you're a top ice hockey player okay and you're 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 slamming in goals all the time you feel you're operating at your best right you're just relaxed and you just can't not score goals you're just you're just killing it whereas if you if you if you're not performing it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So right now I feel like I'm that top ice hockey player because I have that space to breathe. Right. I know what you mean. And I do feel like you contradicted yourself on the surface, but I wouldn't call it a contradiction. I think that it is an awareness of the situation and how we utilize that situation. Cause man, I've been there. I quit my full-time job. I had three little kids at the time. You know, my wife wanted to, to quit working and go back to school. And it was miserable. You know, I had sleepless nights. I'd wake up in the morning just sweating, you know, just that constant pressure of always being under the gun. It sucked, but it did give me that fire in my belly to get things done. Like it probably pushed me to a point that I wouldn't have gotten to before. And now I find myself being lazy. Yeah, I've got product launches I've just been putting off like ah, I can't get around to it, you know, because I don't have that immediate need to succeed or the immediate need for money. But on the other hand, it is nice because I can slow down. I can avoid my mistakes, you know, my old mistakes. I can measure twice, cut once. So I'm not, I, I wouldn't say that one way is better than another to, you know, save a bunch of money and, and do it, you know, more relaxed or to just force yourself into it. I think that either of them have advantages and disadvantages, but I think it does make sense to be aware of the shortfalls and the advantages of both. You know, right now, yes, one, one of the dangerous traps I can find myself into is apathy. You know, like, I just don't care. You know, I'm, who cares if I get this done next week or next month? Um, but as long as I understand that, I can have other people hold me accountable or I can set, you know, my own schedule. But take advantage of the fact that I'm not freaking out every night. You know, I can actually sleep all night because I'm not just worried. So if you're listening, if you're in either one of those positions, you know, where you've got some flexibility, you don't have flexibility, keep in mind there are advantages and drawbacks to both. And just keep in mind that you do things differently in both. So my understanding, Ben, is you're not saying one is better than the other. You're just saying you understand it and you're doing things differently this time. But I think that it is true, and correct me if I'm wrong from what you're saying, I think what you said is that it's true that you can scale faster, obviously, when you do have more money to put behind it. Just don't assume that you have to have a lot of money to get going. You're absolutely right? right. What really helps, regardless of whether you have the money or not, is that you're, what you're working on is something you're passionate about. If you're building a brand related to knitting, please be passionate about knitting. 
Otherwise, you know, you mentioned apathy there. You're not going to have the get get up and go in the morning to get up and go. And this is actually especially true if you have already had an exit. Like say, say you built a brand that you weren't particularly passionate about, but there was enough pressure there to make you, you know, get after it and, and crush it. And eventually you sold it and you, you want to go again. Now you have the time and space and breathing space to take a step back and actually go after something you're passionate about. Build a brand that, that you're, you're not going to fall into that apathy trap. Yeah. Yeah. It makes complete sense. So what else are you doing differently in this business now that you've learned a few things? Like, what do you sit down and say, um, Hey, I'm, I'm intentionally doing this this way because of what I learned from my first exit. Well, I've partnered on this brand. So I have, I have several brands in my, in my pipeline, but only 24 hours in a day and several projects going on. So the the first one that I'm working on, which is in the parent and and, and child space, uh, I've partnered on, uh, with a friend of mine, um, and the reason for that is is kind of twofold. Um, first of all, I recognize the strength of partnerships, and I recognize that I don't know it all. And uh, so my business partner in this, uh, Mark, he is uh, much better at the technical stuff, the technical nitty-gritty, particularly when it comes to um, both the running of like a marketplace account like, like Amazon. He's great at PPC. He's great at all the technical stuff, flat files, all that all that kind of thing. He's also uh, an SEO expert. Whereas I'm more of the the brand guy, uh, the visionary guy. I do you know the so, the social media stuff. Um, kind of taking a step back and seeing how all the moving parts link together. How are we going to make our on Amazon and our off Amazon stuff work together to collect reviews on Amazon, but similarly build our Instagram and get, build our email list and get people in our chatbot and all that all that stuff. And and he's more of the the guy who gets in there with the hammer and the screwdriver and makes it all work. So I recognize that I don't know everything, and, and by by pooling our 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 brain power, we can we can win in that way. I also recognize that I have several projects on, and you know it's nice not to have all my eggs in one basket, and it's nice that I know that if I need to concentrate a bit more of my time on, you know, this other project, Mark is there with this brand, and and you know, and vice versa as well, of course, for him. So that's something different that I'm doing. And I would really encourage people to consider consider a partnership, um, particularly second time around, I think. Do you think that it's easier the second time around because you know what to look out for, you know what you need, you know you know what you can augment you know your weaknesses or, or even strengths against? Is that why you say particularly the second time around? Yeah, I think so. It's almost like the first time around you don't know what you don't exactly. know. Exactly. You don't know what you don't know. Now you now you should know what you don't know, hopefully. Um, but also first time around, you know, I, I, I often say to people that it's good if you, before you, you know, you outsource something or you, you, you pay an agency or whatever, that you have a decent understanding of how, so, you know, whatever it is, whether it's PPC or, or whatever works so that you know that the people that you're getting to do it are doing a good job. Now you've done that, you, you know, you've done that first time around, you know, what, how it should more or less look and what, what's a good job and what's not a very good job. You can already either partner on that or outsource it or get an agency to do it or whatever it is. So second time around, you just have a whole lot more um, competency across you know, many, many domains in an e-commerce business, whether that's on a marketplace or on your own site or whatever it is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense too. So what about timelines? You know, Everybody wants to build a business and sell it. Um, do you think that the timeline is sped up, slowed down? Do you think that you have something in mind as far as like the ideal time that you're going to hit for when you want to take your business to market? So there's a couple of ways I want to answer this. Now that I know 
how a business is valued, I can keep a track because so many people kind of don't know this, right? They just they just approach whoever they're approaching and say, hey, what do you think my business is worth? But now that I know how it is valued, we're keeping as part of our, you know, on our dashboards, we will be keeping a, a live track on more or less what the business is, is worth. And we're going to have a, a, a number in our head. And when we're ready to take it to market, we'll, we'll, we'll pull the trigger. But it's worth pointing out that we won't necessarily sell this business to, you know, your general e-commerce aggregator. This might be a, end up being a strategic purchase for somebody else in this space or sold to somebody outside of your typical aggregator. So we'll keep a track on that. And when we get close to our magic number, we'll we'll start getting the ball rolling in terms of an exit. And that will probably be in the region of two to four years. Um, we'll see. But who knows how that... That's a little further than what a lot of people say. I hear a lot of people saying 18 months, 24 months, because... I think a lot of people feel like this simple exit aggregator purchase type thing is finite, like it's not going to last forever. They're making a fair point. So a lot of people have raised a lot of money in this space and they are now spending that money. So in that sense, it's not going to last yeah. forever. However, I believe this will come in waves and more and more money will, will eventually get raised. But we're not playing, we're building a consumer brand, which will happen, which will sell on Amazon. It will also sell on our own website and various other channels and potentially in retail as well. So we're not necessarily going after that wave or that bubble. It may end up exiting in that route, not ruling that out, but we're building a consumer brand. Um, and, 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 you know, we're not, we're not selling, um, uh, you know, baby weaning spoons on Amazon for five bucks. Um, and we're going to exit in, in, in 18 months. That's kind of not, not what we're doing. Um, so that's kind of one way to look at when is the right time to exit for us anyway. And then I have another kind of emotional wishy-washy answer. I stand by this one, even though it's kind of emotional and wishy-washy, which is this, which is that um, business owners could, should consider exiting at the point of peak romance. And what the, what I'm saying, this doesn't, you know, uh, detract from all, all the all, all the financial stuff, right? But but selling at the point of peak romance. Here's what this means, right? Um, there comes a time in your business when you think, "Wow, this could this could seriously explode. This could this could be huge. This could go somewhere." And at that point, there's still a significant amount of upside for a potential buyer, and your business is clearly performing well. So you're going to have a pretty decent valuation and your business is going to be sellable in that it's attractive to a potential buyer. But at the same time, there's every chance that it might not go stratospheric as you romantically hope that it will. If you get out at this point, you should, provided you have the right people representing you and helping you, be able to achieve an excellent valuation for your business based on its performance so far and the clear trajectory that it is on. In the event that the new owner isn't able to realize that stratospheric trajectory that it may be on or may not be on, we're talking romantically, remember, then you got out at the right time. If you've done your deal structure correctly, you're going to experience some of that upside and you will always be the guy or girl who founded that awesome brand. So that's a little bit, you know, that, that side of it, that emotional gut feeling side of it is often not talked about and it should be. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that a lot of people have a hard time balancing like that emotional side of their business versus the analytical side. You know, like how much mm-hmm. emotion should we pour in and then how much excitement should we have or how many decisions should we be, you know, be making based on gut instinct versus, you know, analytics. So I think that's, that's, that's tough, but I do agree that if we're not at least considering the emotional implications or using some emotion in our thought process, we miss a big opportunity because the best businesses and the best, you know, business ventures and the best business decisions, a lot of times are, are based on the drive brought by emotion, the excitement and the passion, right? Yep. And that's another good reason to partner is if you're the excitable, emotional one, partner with somebody who's a little bit more cool and calm and collected. And if you're, you know, if you're cool and calm and, and collected, partner with somebody who gets a little bit too excited. And that will be, you know, a really good combination. Yeah. As long as the person's not dragging you down or pulling you into unnecessary risks, there's definitely some, some shortfalls there. But I agree that's, it, that goes back to that whole, um, you know, visionary versus integrator role. Yep. You know, the best founders are balanced. So, man, there's so much there's so much that we've covered. We're we're coming out of time, but I think that some of the big takeaways is that, um, you know, all of us are learning. I won't say this is new, but all of us are learning that our businesses do have value, especially you know Amazon e-commerce sellers. And it was just a few years ago, and I didn't believe that, and a lot of other people in the space, you know, couldn't prove to me that that, that was true. Um, Continue to educate yourself, folks. Those of you listening, continue to educate yourself on what's happening in the industry, uh, what's valuable, what's not valuable, what's worth your time, what's not worth your time, because there are people that are making a lot of money. There are people that are actually generating uh, generational wealth right now from something that started as a side hustle, something that they started selling something you know out of their garage. Like it's really, really happening. <laughs> But there are shortfalls. There are mistakes. You know, Ben's made some mistakes. Uh, he's changing things now going back forward. So I think one of the big takeaways is educate yourself and make sure that you're doing this correctly. This is a big opportunity. You don't want to screw it up. The other thing is it's not a one shot and done. Mm. If you've exited, if you are exiting, if, if you have made some mistakes, keep going. You know, Ben has, ben has done it. He's helped other people do it and he's doing it again. And that's not because he's a glutton for punishment. It's because that opportunity still exists. So if you think that you didn't start your business in 2017, you're going to sell now, who cares? Keep moving forward. You're going to have to do it differently than some of us did it two or three years ago, but, but there is still plenty of opportunity. Anything else last to add, Ben, before we, uh, before we wrap this up? Ooh, um, make sure that when you are running your business, that you're keeping everything neat and tidy because even those listening to this who say, oh, I don't want to sell, um, there's got there's going to be an end game one day. And the chances are that when you decide you, you're not doing this anymore, you're going you're gonna to want to sell. So if you keep everything neat and tidy now, and what I mean by that is meticulous record keeping, um, make sure your accounts are being uh, done by a, a proper accountant. Make sure your intellectual property in, is in order. Make sure that if something happened to you and somebody opened up your laptop, that it, it they could make some sense of it and that it was organized. Uh, you wouldn't believe the number of fantastic looking businesses. The products are great. The reviews are wonderful. The website looks amazing and the social media is incredible, but you open it up and it's a complete mess. The opportunities there for the vultures who are circling to tear it apart and find reasons to, to lowball you and undervalue your business. You're just, you're just giving it away. So keep everything neat and tidy, have excellent record keeping, uh, read a book called built to sell, uh, by John Warrillow. Um, I get nothing for recommending that. I just love it. Um, and obviously the classic E-Myth uh, Revisited by Michael E. Gerber. Um, those two books will, uh, will have you on the, the right path to, to building a, a valuable asset that 
that you can either sell sooner or later. Well, you kind of messed up my last question. That's what I always ask all of our guests is, you know, what's the one book that you would go to the bookshelf and recommend? And first one you pulled off, um, you know, John Warlow's Built to Sell. I've recommended that a lot of times. In fact, a spoiler alert, I've got him coming on a future episode. He reached out to me about three weeks ago and said, hey, I've heard your podcast. I'd love to be on it. I said, holy crap, I've read your book. This is amazing. So John's going to Yeah, I was on his show a while ago. Really good guy. Okay, don't worry. I'll I'll do another one. So we've done the E-Myth. Uh, built to sell. Um, I really like um, uh, the the million dollar one person business by Elaine Pofeld. Um, Elaine Pofeld, she's from New Jersey. Uh, I first heard her on the Tim Ferriss podcast years ago. Um, the million dollar one person business. Um, she writes for Forbes. She was one of the first people to kind of break the story, if you like. That you know, it was all because we all knew about you building amazing e-commerce businesses within our little niche industry but she was one of the first people to kind of tell the outside world about it so uh elaine profiled the million dollar one person business is a cool book okay awesome well we are out of time we need to wrap it up but thank you ben leonard for being on if anybody want to get in touch with you how would they find you sure um i'm on all the main social media channels my handle is ben leonard pro instagram twitter facebook uh you can get me on linkedin just search ben leonard uh, L-E-O-N-A-R-D. And you can email me, ben at ecombrokers.co.uk. Cool. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on. Thank you all for listening. Remember, I say it at the end of all the episodes, I'll say it again. If you like this episode, leave us a review on whatever pro- uh, podcast platform you're listening to. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to subscribe to the channel. Give us a thumbs up on the video. Share it around. We appreciate uh, all the love. Uh, the more love we get, the more episodes we can do and the higher our production value and the better guests we can bring on. So make sure to help us by being part of this community and promoting the podcast. Uh, if any of you have any questions, if you're watching on YouTube, ask any of those questions in the comment section below and we'll get those questions over to Ben and get those answered. Again, thank you all for listening. I love all of you. I appreciate all the support that you all give me and we'll see you guys on the next episode.